0: I think curiosity has something to do with an ability to imagine and imagine other people's lives. And I, I believe that all kinds of stereotyping, all kinds of prejudice, and all kinds of racism are, are fundamentally incurious because they start with, with an inability or unwillingness to imagine other people's humanity other people's lives
1: you're listening to choose to be curious a show all about curiosity we talk about research and theory but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and work in life i'm your host lynn borton welcome come choose to be curious with us with fallout continuing from the decisions in Florida and elsewhere to radically curtail teaching Black American history, or even to address or acknowledge the horrific realities of systemic endemic racism and slavery in this country, I have found myself thinking about a conversation I had some time ago about how we're never really done with history. History keeps revealing itself, or it should With access to new information, we have an opportunity to understand better the lives and thinking of people who came before us. What's so dangerous about current trends sweeping uncomfortable facts away is not just that it likely dooms us to repeat that history, but it denies the reality and experiences of those who lived through those facts. Gaslighting doesn't even begin to describe it. So I wanted to revisit a conversation about choosing to be curious about racism in general and lynching in particular, about choosing to be curious about very uncomfortable truths that unfold in our communities, whether we acknowledge them or not. This week is definitely one of our more sobering topics as we take on some of our own unsettling history. We're doing a double take on lynching, literally looking and then looking again, and and from two perspectives, using intention and choosing to be curious to refocus on a subject that many in this country would prefer to avoid. And doing so with the help of two people who, though they come at the subject in different ways, I like to think like our own two eyes give us better perspective, more depth to look at what's in front of us. Joining us by telephone is Susan Strasser, an award-winning historian and a distinguished lecturer for the Organization of American Historians. She's been described by The New Yorker as retrieving what history discards, the taken-for-granted minutiae of everyday life. Her books include Never Done, A History of American Housework, Satisfaction Guaranteed, The Making of an American Mass Market, and Waste and Want, A Social History of Trash. She's the Richards Professor Emerita of American History at the University of Delaware. So welcome, Susan.
0: Very happy to be here.
1: And here in the studio with me is playwright, poet, artist, and author Marsha E. Cole. Marsha is a native Washingtonian in the process of a reinvention, A Woman After My Own Heart. In 2014, she received her B.A. in Early Childhood Education from the University of the District of Columbia, And she's won the College Language Association Creative Writing Contest across three genres, drama, poetry, and short story. She's a strong advocate for literacy and believes the arts are essential to understanding the world we live in, whether by examining the past or looking to the future. So welcome, Marsha.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: It's thrilling to have both of you here. Actually, Susan, I heard you speak for the first time at a presentation you you gave called A White Historian Confronts Slavery, offered by the Challenging Racism Program here in Arlington. And I thought, wow, that's so interesting and so important to be revisiting history in this way, to be bringing curiosity to history. And I thought I should get her on my show. And then I heard both of you speak at a second Challenging Racism Program on today's topic. And I thought, that does it. I have to make this work. (laughs) Uh, so thank you both for for making this work. and I, I want to start in your areas of expertise. First, Susan, you've written about um, history evolving. And I wonder if you could start there. Is the history not it's not a done deal, is it?
0: No, it's never a done deal. Um, there's always new evidence. There are always new methods. There are always new ways of thinking about it, and there are always new questions that come from current circumstances. So historians, I mean, people talk about revisionist history as if that's a bad thing. And in fact, historians revise all the time, and we're proud of it, and we're glad of it. So, um, you know, the the sneer that comes with revisionist history is, is really silly, because, History does evolve. History changes. History changes all the time, and it always has.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and Marsha, you actually wrote somewhere, I discovered there was so much I didn't know. What I learned in school was just the beginning. Absolutely.
2: It's an ongoing process of, as you say, being curious and discovery. And the more that I discover, the more I want to share what I've discovered. And that's what my um, art has allowed me to do. And it's been very enriching. And when people are thankful for
1: for what I share, that really makes me glad. Yeah, I'll bet. You also then brought your art into it and talked about how art pushes history. Tell me more about that.
2: I find that all the arts are important to our understanding of life. Um, art crystallizes our impressions of life. And um, I find that going through museums and galleries, you can get a full education just by really engaging with the exhibits. And so I found that someone's painting may inspire a poem, someone's uh, poetry may inspire a play. So there's a, a, a mixing up of interpretations that, you um, can go in all kinds of directions, and I just love being engaged with all
1: the arts because they inspire me. Yeah, and I was so struck. I mean, the two of you do this joint presentation on lynching, and it was, I have to say, a really challenging hour or hour and a half. Um, It was very poignant. The images, both the historic images that we were sharing, but also the images, Marcia, that you created with your poetry, really landed. And and I thought, what a powerful way to raise my own curiosity about this subject. And I wrote, I don't remember exactly what prompted it, but and I'm sure I was already fantasizing about this conversation. <laughs> but I wrote in the margins of my notes that lynching itself is deeply incurious. And I I wonder what you two think about that. Hmm.
0: Well, uh, you've you've clearly <laughs> made, made a thing of thinking about curiosity much more than I have. But I I I I think that you're absolutely right. I think curiosity has something to do with an ability to imagine and imagine other people's lives and I I believe that all kinds of stereotyping, all kinds of prejudice and all kinds of racism are are fundamentally incurious because they start with with an inability or unwillingness to imagine other people's humanity other people's lives so i i I, I think that that's really wise that thought uh,
2: in the process of being curious, I put myself in the shoes in this case, the noose. Uh, the victim, mm. and, um, or in the midst of the crowd. That kind of, of imagining, and based upon what I know and what I could, as a human being can imagine, that is the source of my, my poetry, my writing.
1: Do you have a poem that speaks to that that you could read for us?
2: Yes, I do. The first picture that I saw in a history book when I was taking a class was of William Biggerstaff. And he was uh, suspended there, ho- hooded and suspended and surrounded by a small group of people in that particular image. But what I noticed was the a ring on his left finger. Mm. And that spoke to me of a human connection. And that picture says to me, someone loved him, someone was waiting for him, and someone would not see him again alive. Mm. So I... This is not the first poem that I wrote, but it's a part of my thinking, which is a haiku that uh, um, speaks to that. And I chose a haiku form because it is compact and you have to be exact in your wording to crystallize your thought. So I want to sh- share that haiku yeah, with please you.
1: please do.
2: Golden wedding band. Cyclops camera saw a wink on that cold Brown hand. Mm. Mm. So, um, and I want to follow that up, that thinking up with this, this other poem about the person I imagined who would not see him again alive, which would be a wife. And I've, I came up with a name that I thought would work uh, for what I imagined. And this is what I'm thinking when I shared this poem Myrtle Wailed. When last I looked, her glistening eyes followed me till out of sight. Her dismiss please he's not the one, he was with me. Drowned by rabble. Wave upon wave, a roaring rising tide, lost on an angry sea. So I saw uh, some group of men coming to take her husband away in the dead of night, And she couldn't see them clearly because it was nighttime. And they didn't care what she had to say, but they took him away. And um, there she was left crying and didn't know what his fate would be. But ultimately, his fate would be he would be lynched.
1: Yeah, yeah. Susan, so much of what you talked about in your presentation was what we even what what lynching is, what we count as lynching, particularly since so much of it as as Marcia's just said, happens in the dark of night, where the witnesses are discounted to the extent that they even exist. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about those definitions and that context for all of this and the way we maybe thought about it in in real time and how that's evolved. As you say,
0: sure. Um, the word lynching ends up being used for all different kinds of situations, and you know they they range from a, a very few people dragging someone into the woods at night and murdering him or her, usually him, to these. What historians have come to call spectacle lynchings, which involved thousands and sometimes tens of thousands of spectators gathering to watch and uh, I, I, I hate to say it, but enjoy the the whole way that these spectacles were organized, involved almost a festival atmosphere.
1: You're listening to Choose to Be Curious, conversations about curiosity and work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and I'm joined today by historian Susan Strasser and poet Marsha Cole. We're doing a double take on lynching.
0: Uh, so the organizations that worked to try to end lynching had trouble defining what does a lynching mean if it's if if it can be you know these these two kinds of of uh, circumstances or really anything in between. And because one of the strongest arguments that the organizations that were opposing lynching could make had to do with statistics with the awful numbers of people who were who were being lynched, and because, Statistics depend on a definition. Either somebody is in the statistic or is not. Um, The organizations met together in 1940 and, and came up with a definition that historians have tended to use, which says, first of all, that the person, to call it a lynching, someone had to be killed. Uh, secondly, that it had to be an illegal thing, which meant that under this definition, police killings were not considered lynchings. Mm. Thirdly, that there had to be three or more perpetrators, and finally, that there had to be a pretext that the murder was done in service to justice or tradition. In other words, that the the person who was lynched was in general, accused of something so that the, the whole ritual was done as a, a way of doing, quote, justice, unquote. Um, it's a sticky definition, especially those three or more perpetrators. Um, the famous lynching of Emmett Till um, in the 1950s had two perpetrators, and there are a few people who would call that not a lynching. But that at least helps us understand something that can bring together these these actually very different kinds of circumstances. I should say also that although... The noose has become the symbol of lynching. Many people who were lynched were burned to death or shot. Sometimes they were shot and then their bodies were hung up as if they had been hanged. Sometimes they were hanged and then their bodies were shot up. I mean, the, the, the horrors of the treatment of these people's bodies is, is really horrifying.
1: Yeah, I I'm glad you brought up Emmett Till because I thought your discussion of of that murder and the violence there and and putting it in the context of lynching since it didn't involve a rope and in some ways didn't meet the the book definitions and yet I think on a visceral level absolutely meets that definition and and his mother you know made the the famous comment that, let the people see what I have seen. And I wonder if that's what you and Marcia are really doing here.
2: Well, I would say so. I try to use words to create a mental picture of what I've seen when I look at images. And what Susan was just saying, how the various ways in which the bodies were brutalized uh, comes out clearly and this poem that also references Jesse Washington, a horrific event, and I'd like to share that so if you can so you can see what I saw in my mind's eye.
1: Yeah, yeah, go ahead.
2: At last the hapless form has stopped its tortured twisting, rendered fat hissed and smoked in the ritual pyre beneath his burnt and blackened feet. And some time after his scant remains were committed to Earth's cool embrace. A sudden rain turned alkali and fat to primitive soap that churned to froth as if to wash away the shame. Mm. So, um, yeah, when I saw that picture of Jesse Washington, he was so badly charred, he looked like part of the burned tree trunk. And so um, this was a way of, saying this was a person there.
1: You know, I think what what to me was so effective about your collaboration was this insistence on both of your parts that we as your audience, as your listeners confront our own reactions to what you were putting in front of us. And some of that was, was sort of facts, and Susan, you had descriptions and images of uh, of lynchings and this whole idea that these things were planned and advertised which to me was was new information and really horrifying like like more even more horrifying than the other stuff and mm-hmm. and and then marsha that you were able to give voice to some of what i was feeling sitting there in that high school <laughs> auditorium chair so why is it why is that important why is the discomfort that you each elicit important in this?
2: Well, I think Elie Wiesel said it well. Uh, he, you know, if we, if we don't remember the dead, it's like akin to killing them again, something mm. to that effect. And so we don't want history to keep repeating itself, and by not knowing, it gives license to do and repeat. Yeah. So this is a keep history... Forefront, so that we don't have a repetition of what we had before.
0: I think. I think by Marcia quoting Ellie Wiesel, I'm just reminded. I, I was just recently uh, in Germany and Austria, and Germany has done a really astoundingly good job of not letting us forget in a variety of ways. There are a variety of different. I mean, there's the big. Uh, memorial to the murdered Jews that is a big memorial site. There are little, I would say, five-inch square brass, they're called Stolpersteiner, which means stumble stones, that are in front of houses from which people were deported during the Holocaust, that have the names of the people and their dates and when, when they were you know, people who lived in that house, literally, you could see who lived there. Um, There's one part of Berlin where there's, uh, that was a Jewish neighborhood, where there were, there, there are signs like outside the post office or outside the bakery. There are signs that say what the rules were that made, you know, Jews could only go to the post office in certain hours, or Jews could only have a certain kind of bread at a certain kind of time of day, um, so that there's not you can't go very far without being reminded. And I, you know, I'm sure people tend to stop seeing some of it, but it's there. It's it's it it, it is uncomfortable, but it's the only way that we can begin to deal with things. And mm-hmm. I think the new memorial that the Equal Justice Initiative is opening um, on April 26 really is a, a beginning for the United States to deal with this with respect to lynching, but it's, it is that that same sort of, I mean the, the, these these horrific, uncomfortable facts of history have to be faced. And uh, if, you know, if we're going to change as a culture, as a society, we have to recognize that change, change is hard. Change is not easy. And that there's no way to do it without going through discomfort.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think what Susan and I do is when people think is comfortable to go to sleep on history, we sort of prod them and wake them up again. Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's so exactly if, right. You can't sleep through this thing. You have to stay stay woke, as they say. <laughs> you have to stay awake to uh, what has happened and what's going on now so we don't slip back.
1: Well, or, or you know, I would say stay curious about it, right? You know, whose, whose agenda is being served by the narrative that we're hearing and what does that suggest that maybe we're not hearing about the history. So so let me ask you, you mentioned the Equal Justice Initiative. Assuming people's curiosity has been piqued on this subject, where might they go for more information?
0: Well, I would say the Equal Justice Initiative website would be the first place to go. Yes. Uh, EJI.org. Mm-hmm. They have... Not only done this memorial, but they have a really stunningly excellent historical report that is up on the website, and that that I think would be the first thing that I would recommend that great. people look at.
2: There's some wonderful videos on YouTube where Brian, what's Brian's last
1: name? Stevenson.
2: Brian Stevenson is giving talks, TED talks, where he's he yes, talks about, I've
1: seen a couple of those. So that's a, a great way. To I will. I will. Put links to some of those on my Facebook yes. page. Yes, um, he's, he's for very to eloquent and for. speaks very well.
2: And uh, so, supporting
1: that organization
2: will be a good good step.
1: Great, great. Well, thank you both for this. Um, I'm going to switch gears a little bit here. You know, nobody gets away from choose to be curious without an analogy. <laughs> so, uh, Marsha, I'm going to ask you to take a slip from my big jar here, okay. and Susan, I'll take one out for you, one okay. for me, one for our audience. Um, and uh, let's see, Susan, your word is motorcycle. 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 Uh, Marsha, you want to go? You want me to go? Susan, you want to go? Mine is flip-flops. Oh, all right. <laughs> you ready?
2: <laughs> uh, let's see, flip-flops. Well, um, that's what can happen with history. If we don't stay the course, we can flip back and flop back into um,
1: <laughs>
2: I'm stretching here <laughs> yeah that's what these into are all about <laughs> a past that we don't want to revisit so we have to stay steady afoot marching forward with armed with knowledge uh-huh. how about that Ooh, eloquent
1: <laughs> eloquent That's, that's I pretty expected great. nothing less <laughs> all right Susan you want to go or you want me to go uh, I'll let you go. Okay. All I'm right. still Let's... thinking. I haven't, I haven't. Okay, so mine says listening to music. How is curiosity like listening to music? Um, hmm. I, I would say that curiosity is like listening to music because it can transport us. It um, it taps into feelings and thoughts we might not otherwise know are there, but um, and um, it's uh, it's inherently creative, so that's how curiosity is like listening to music. Okay, all right, Susan, you're up. How's curiosity okay, like a motorcycle? Motorcycle, motorcycle? How is
0: curiosity like a motorcycle? Um, Well, I guess it helps us to make a lot of noise and go fast and careen around the curves.
1: Um, (laughs) I like it. I like it. (laughs) Wonderful. See? See that people come up with really fun things. And, audience, yours is, how is curiosity like nursery rhymes? Hmm. I don't know. Let us know. Hashtag analogy. Well, Marcia, Susan, thank you so much for this. Thank you. Thank
2: you so, so much for this
1: opportunity. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious. I'm Lynn Borton. I've enjoyed being your host today. Thank you for joining us. You can find all my shows on my website at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you follow me here, there, and on social media at Choose to be Curious. And don't forget to send us your nursery rhyme analogy, hashtag analogy. A huge thank you to Susan Strasser and Marsha Cole. I hope their insights stay with you as long as they have with me. Find links to their impressive work as well as to the Equal Rights Initiative on my website. Thanks too to Sean Ballack for our theme music. And this is Surly Bonds by Arana via Blue Dot Sessions. Some of our stories are just harder than others. Some of our history, more shameful. I suggest to you that curiosity actually helps either way. James Stevens wrote in The Crock of Gold, Curiosity will conquer fear even more than bravery will. Indeed, it has led many people into dangers which mere physical courage would shudder away from, for hunger and love and curiosity are the great impelling forces in life. I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then. Choose to be curious.